Welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. It's good to be back with you back in the saddle, so to speak. We hadn't posted an episode in a couple weeks. For that, I apologize, but we're back on the bump today. Today, we're going to be discussing and reviewing a book called Family Shepherds, written by Vody Bauckham, Jr. This book was recommended to me by my brother. I've owned it for quite a while, had it in my library but it's been kind of on a back burner, haven't gotten around to reading all of it. I read, I don't know, three or four chapters of it at one point, and at his recommendation, he's pretty high on it, I decided to sit down and read through the book entirely with a group of guys. Um, I've taken a group of church leaders through this material, and I've found it to be a pretty helpful material. It has some chicken and bones, as all books do, and I want to talk some about that, but give you a little bit of background on the author and the purpose, background of the book, those sort of things. Some of the pros and cons, if you will. Uh, First of all, this book is a book that is targeted primarily at fathers. It's about the family in general and the the raising of the family, but it has in its crosshairs, if you will, Christian fathers. And trying to discuss the role that they play within their family and also within the church setting is trying to introduce some key spiritual concepts that fathers need to be aware of in the implementation of filling their role as godly fathers. And it also evaluates a lot of current trends and popular ideas that are detrimental to the work that a father is doing. And so I think there's some noble aims and does a pretty good job in general of attacking and addressing these issues and fulfilling its goals. I'll give you a little bit of background on Vody Bauckham Jr. He is from a Reformed background, and by that I mean he has quite a bit of Calvin background to him, and this is going to surface on several occasions. And so we'll talk about where those areas are and what the concerns are. Uh, chapter 4, which is entitled Heralding the Gospel at Home, and Chapter 10 called Remembering the Fall, are the two chapters that are most highly saturated with Calvinism. Uh, In those chapters, you will find a discussion of total depravity that's going to come up a number of times, especially in chapter 10, remembering the fall. And chapter 10 is almost entirely worthless, in my opinion. It might be helpful if you're going to have a discussion with your Calvinist friend who is pretty outspoken on total depravity, but outside of preparing for a discussion or understanding what arguments Calvinism is bringing to the table, this has very few redeeming qualities in chapter 10. Chapter 4 is a discussion of heralding the gospel at home, and in other words, what is the gospel and how do we teach the gospel to our families. Uh, he does a terrible job of defining what the gospel is. He contradicts himself many times over, and at points you're scratching your head wondering what is the gospel. He has been attacking people for their non-clarity on what the gospel is, and yet he himself doesn't do a very good job of providing a definition or a sustained definition with which he's consistent throughout the chapter. Uh, Chapter 4 and chapter 10 both are almost entirely worthless. If there was much of any type of redeeming quality, it certainly does not 
in my opinion, warrant reading those chapters. Uh, he has a problem with the concept of faith and works. He's like a common Calvinist. He, he assumes that all works are meritorious works and that faith is something that God alone supplies. And so you're going to have this works-faith dichotomy that is not found in Scripture. He has this concept of the direct operation of the Holy Spirit, as all Calvinists do. In other words, we are fallen creatures. We cannot do anything good. We are totally depraved. And so as a result of that, we're going to have to have the Holy Spirit directly operating upon us to not only become good people, but also to understand what the Bible is all talking about. He has a false law versus gospel dichotomy, which he is presenting, especially in chapter 4, where anything... Uh, of the Old Testament was considered law, and everything in the New Testament is considered grace or gospel, and this is going to be problematic in a number of areas. So, all that to say, chapter 4 and chapter 10, almost entirely worthless. You need to be aware of that, and you also need to be somewhat on guard as you read throughout the entirety of the book. Though Calvinism doesn't pop up on every page, it is something that is in his background and you need to be aware of. A second problem of his, coming from his Reformed background, is not only Calvinism, but also covenant theology. For instance, in chapter 14, he addresses the Christian Sabbath. And though there are some principles that are valid principles presented in chapter 14, the whole concept of chapter 14 is a false concept. And the reason he believes in a Christian Sabbath, he calls it the Lord's Day, but he, he believes in covenant theology. So in other words, covenant theology notices the similarities of all the covenants rather than recognizing similarity and dissimilarity. So he believes that we're still living by the Ten Commandments and thus we have to keep the Sabbath, only he has in his mind transformed it from the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to the Lord's day on the first day of the week, which is is not being fair with s s the Sabbath. Uh, covenant theology would have a very difficult time dealing with a Seventh-day Adventist because Seventh-day Adventists have taken covenant theology to its natural and consistent end. And the fact is, we don't practice the Sabbath any longer. He's trying to establish the Sabbath and the principle of rest and that you need to work and rest and use your time wisely. The concept of needing to rest is a valid concept. The concept of needing to use your time wisely, also a valid principle in Scripture. But teaching the Sabbath in doing that is a false concept, something that you need to be aware of. Um, his covenant theology also challenges how he views the Old Testament as a whole, and concepts of the Ten Commandments will come up over and over again, versus understanding the old has passed away and the new has come in with Christ. Uh, a third thing that doesn't surface a lot in this book, it does surface just a little bit, he has some kind of political leanings. He believes Christians should be politically involved. He addresses this in chapter 15 where he talks about dual citizenship. He has basically one paragraph where he's advocating Christians go and vote and whatnot, get involved in politics. He recognizes we are Christians first and foremost, so he makes a distinction between uh, church and state, which is good. He has some good material on making that distinction, though he thinks we should still operate where we can in the state realm. So I would disagree with him on that. If you want a couple good reads on that, you can read Civil Government by David Lipscomb, or you can uh, read Liam Rogers' book on civil government as well. So those are the, the main cons that you need to be aware of. Some are fairly extensive, although I don't think his cons 
invalidate the usefulness of the book. It does give some caution, some things you need to be aware of, but there is good material that outweighs some of his cons. On the pro side of things, let's talk about the good points of the book and why maybe you should consider reading this. Um, let's talk about writing style, first of all. I like how Bauckham writes. That's one of his appealing qualities. He is clear, direct, and rather provocative. And when I say direct and provocative, I mean when he has the truth, he gets to it very directly. He does not mix words. He states things as they are, yet he is not offensive in how he does that. It's an admirable quality. I appreciate that in a writer to know what their position is with clarity and when they are making the correct point from truth, that they are direct and to the point. I can appreciate that very much, and so I like his writing style in general. As far as his content, there's really a, a couple of main branches. I'm not going to do a chapter-by-chapter chapter breakdown of his book, but I want to throw out at you some of the main concepts that are discussed within the book. One of the main things he's discussing throughout is the various roles that Christians find themselves in and the roles that need to be aware, uh, fathers need to be aware of in the raising of their family, the ordering of their home, and also their role within the church. So first of all, he's going to make a big play about husbands being the heads of their homes. It's going to be, in fact, touching on nearly every aspect of his book. He's placing fathers, husbands, at the forefront of their home and giving them instruction to lead not only their children but also their wives for the sake of God's glory. When he starts talking about the role of the husbands and wives, he does this by, first of all, having a very high view of marriage. He spends one chapter entirely discussing the purpose of marriage and one of the purposes or one of the blessings of marriage being that of children. We should view children as a blessing and not as a curse. If we view them as a blessing, we should also realize they're a blessing given by God for God's glory. And so if we're going to have children, we need to understand the responsibility that God has placed on us in bringing up children for his glory to further the cause of Christ and to uh, exemplify that, that godly glory within our home. While speaking about the blessing that is that are our children, he's also very careful to note that children are not the center of marriage or the central focus of marriage. Marriage has to be the prime focus, and children are a byproduct of marriage. In other words, a husband and wife need to work on their relationship with one another because you have children for a time, but a marriage outlasts children being at home. And so if you place all of your focus on your children, you're going to end up losing your marriage or having your marriage negatively effective, effective which in the long term also affects your children even after they're out of your home. So there's some really good material he provides in two chapters on the purpose and the primacy of marriage and the husband and wife's role within that. Having talked about the roles of husbands and wives, he also talks about the parent-child relationship. He talks about the concept of children being submissive to the parents, as also a wife is to be submissive to the husband, though the husband is not to lord it over the wife. He has some good material about the concepts of discipline and training. I think this is really important material uh, for young couples in particular who are raising children like myself, understanding the difference between training and discipline. And what he's talking about when he uses the term discipline is primarily, uh, primarily 
simply like physical spanking. He is an advocate of spanking, as am I. He deals with some arguments that people raise against the literal reading of the rod in the book of Proverbs. I think he does a pretty good job dealing with that, introducing concepts that are helpful in that discussion, though not being exhaustive in that by any means. One of the things he does is he he argues, I think effectively, that a lot of our concepts of discipline are highly culturally generated and affected, and we need to get back to a concept of what does the Bible teach about the rearing of children and discipline, regardless of what our society thinks about it. We are heavily, heavily, more than we would like to admit, influenced in regards to discipline by our psychological culture around us. In discussing the parent-child relationship, he also has a lot to say about fathers modeling the type of behavior they want to see implemented by both their wife and their children. He talks a lot about the father's role of providing physically and spiritually for his wife and his children, and also for protecting both his wife and his children from spiritual dangers which are out there. Fathers need to understand the role God has placed upon them for providing not just physically, but spiritually for the well-being of their family. Having discussed a lot of these interactive roles of the family, he shows how the family is connected with the church concept. And as goes the family, so goes the church. We can't expect to have strong churches if we have weak families. The husband-wife relationship is uh, a model that was set forth so we can understand the role or the relationship between Christ and the church. That's a key concept. If we have terrible marriages, we're going to have uh, weak congregations as well. We have to understand male leadership in the home, also male leadership in the church. He had a really good chapter where he discusses, kind of introduces the, the debate or the controversy, maybe we should better state, raised by feminism and egalitarianism. In other words, feminism and egalitarianism are arguing that women should have a role equal to that of a male within not only the family, but also within the church. They believe women should hold the role of of elders and deacons and preachers and evangelists. Women should be allowed to speak within the church. Paul was a woman hater, all those type of concepts. He shows that egalitarianism and feminism is really an attack on marriage, it's an attack on the church. It's not trying to make equal roles, but it's trying to destroy concepts that the Bible is setting forth. Really good introduction to egalitarianism, feminism, and the dangers that are involved with that. One of the things he also does in talking about the father's role within the church is talking about the roles of leadership within the church that require Good fatherhood, for instance, elders have to be the husband of one wife. That means they have to be a good husband, recognize the role in the family. They also have to have faithful children, so they have they have demonstrated their ability to raise children for God's glory, and they are being set up as a model so we can have that older, younger relationship that is much needed within the church uh, that a lot of times we're lacking. You know, we think sometimes we can do okay without elderships, but as a result of that, we have a number of of shortcomings within the church, and one of those primarily being how families are modeled. If we don't have brethren and sisters who have modeled proper families within their home, we're going to be at great disadvantage, not that it's impossible, but a great disadvantage of having uh, good examples of families within the church. One of the things that he kind of harps on a little bit, he doesn't take a a hard-nosed stance but Bacham is opposed to Sunday school and youth ministers. 
He's not going to say it's a sin. He's trying to walk a fine balance of trying to persuade his his people from a reform background to reconsider how Sunday school is going without at the same time making it a sin. Um, this is very interesting. He's showing some of the shortcomings and the problems that have come about. He's showing one of the things is that Sunday school has taken the primary responsibility that was given by God to the father and to the family to disciple their children and teach their children to the Bible, and it's turned that over to professionals or to other people. In other words, Sunday school has allowed fathers to abdicate their role as head of their home in teaching God's word to the people. They feel like, I don't have to do this. There are professionals that can do this on Sunday. He talks about how Sunday school has separated families from worshiping together, and it's also had a detrimental effect on the concept of family worship. This is a key concept that, if you read this book, many people will be introduced to for the first time, the concept of family worship. So, Bauckham would argue that families need to worship together within the church setting, but they also need to worship together within the home setting. There should be times given for reading, Bible study, or in other words, teaching, and prayer. One of the concepts that he brings up in connection with family worship is the idea of catechizing children. Uh, This is a reformed way of stating having a systematic way of teaching your children. We don't, in the Church of Christ, we don't practice catechism. In other words, we don't have an official list of teachings that parents are required or is officially sanctioned by the church of teaching their children. But the concept of parents teaching their children systematically, having a program, having a having a number of doctrines that they need to instill within their children is a valid concept. We wouldn't call it catechism, but the concept of having Bible study on a regular systematic basis is a valid concept. This is something that we've gotten away from. We've gotten away from the memorization of Scripture. We've gotten away from some of understanding our children, understanding the core doctrines and values that we believe in. We've bought into this concept of let the child discover it for themselves. Let them make their own choices. That's a terrible concept and a surefire way to ensure that your children won't end up in the church one day. One of his weaknesses... uh, In discussing the family church role, he has a chapter dedicated to church membership, and he's trying to to encourage people to be faithful members within their church. Uh, That's a noble thing, but how he goes about it, I think, is kind of weak. And that's my opinion, my take. He's arguing primarily from the concept of personal and corporate benefits of church membership. In other words, he's saying, if you will be a faithful member, this will benefit you spiritually, it will benefit your family spiritually, and it will further the cause of the gospel of Christ. Those are all valid points, but I think it misses the mark of why church membership is important. Church membership is important primarily because God ordained the church. You cannot have a relationship with Christ without having a relationship with his church. If Christ is the head of the body, which is his church, Ephesians chapter 1, then we have to have a relationship with the church if we are to have a relationship with Christ. We have the church because it is God's design. It is the bride of Christ. We have to have a relationship with the church if we are to have a relationship with God. It's not just about personal benefits. It's about what God has designed for his glory and for his honor, the revelation of the mystery. You cannot have the salvation of Christ without the church, which he purchased with his own blood. 
that's enough of that spill and that kind of soapbox. I think it was kind of weak in that area, and it misses the point that we need to recognize. The last area that I'll talk about throughout, he has one chapter dedicated at the very end of this book, but throughout he touches upon this principle as well, the concept of time and priorities. He talks to fathers about uh, their job selections. Are you choosing jobs that allow you to be a father while also providing for your family? It's not all about um, physical provision. It's also about spiritual provision. Uh, how do we manage our finances? Are there things that we could do without in life that would allow us to have more time in providing spiritual blessings to our family rather than just physical? Uh, how are we spending our time in recreation? There's a lot of things that aren't of themselves bad, but they uh, keep us from doing the good things. One of the things he, he talks about in his chapter on time is there was a father he interacted with who who watched football, college football on Saturdays, pro football Sundays and Mondays, had a season tickets to uh, the Houston um, team. I, I can't even think of the Houston's team right now. I know some of my listeners will hate me for that. But anyway, uh, he's a big Texas fan, always went to the Texas OU game. In other words, he was consumed with his recreation, his football. Caused his family to suffer. It kept him from being fully involved in church. He used that as an example when this guy finally recognized the importance of his role as a father and as a church member. He had to give that up, and it wasn't a hard thing to give up when he recognized what he was supposed to be doing. I think that's a fair assessment of what happens a lot of times. Uh, fathers allow their recreation, their entertainment, to interfere with their role. They also allow the entertainment and recreation of their children such as their child is playing football, basketball, soccer, baseball. Every night of the week, there's always some type of school activity, sports recreation activity going on, and it hampers the family from having time to spend it in family worship. The father has a difficult time of having consistent family Bible study or maybe doesn't even recognize that he needs to have that. And he's saying, I'm spending time with my family, but the children have become the focus of the marriage and the family rather than God being at the center of the family. He gives a lot of good, Bacham gives a lot of good advice about self-assessment, reassessing your priorities, taking these things to heart. Why? Again, for the sake of glorifying God. He places a high priority on the concepts of both family worship and family discipleship, the responsibility of both those areas being upon the Father. All in all, I think Bacham's book has a lot of really beneficial material. It's not the end-all in any of these areas that he brings up, but he's giving some introduction to the areas that are very important and needed. I think he does a pretty good job introducing key concepts. He's very pointed. He kind of rattles the cage a few times and tries to get people to wake up to the seriousness of the job that God has placed before them. The book is not without its flaws. It has pros and cons. It has that Calvinism, that covenant theology, and a little bit of political leaning as well. You have to be able to digest that and work that, work through that. I would suggest if you're a father that you read this book. If you don't have a strong background in recognizing or dealing with Calvinism, get with a brother from church who, who does have a strong background in that and read it with them. Uh, in general, I don't ad advise people to read books in isolation. And what I mean by that is whenever you're reading, have somebody that you can visit with who is of a stronger spiritual background than yourself. So that if concepts are brought up that you don't understand or you have questions about, you can go to them and ask them rather than swallowing whatever's handed to you without any discernment whatsoever. 
all in all, I would give this book probably about a 6 out of 10. I think that's probably a little bit lower rating than what my brother would give it, but that's fair. We have different tastes uh, in reading material. I think there's definitely some good in this book, though there are some things to be aware of and a few downsides to it as well. I hope this review has been helpful to you. Maybe I introduce you to some material and some concepts that you'd like to pursue further. I'd appreciate and um, welcome any feedback that you can give us. Our contact information is christianresearcher at gmail.com. You can email us there with questions, recommendations, other thoughts. We've had several people reach out to us recently and give some feedback on the, the program and also some encouragement, and we're very thankful for that as well. I'll let you go for now. Appreciate you tuning in this week, and hopefully we'll be joining you again shortly with another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. God bless. Have a great week. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.